0: This morning, I wanted to focus on Matthew's gospel account, because I think that of all the four gospels, Matthew gives us a uniquely fitting way to end the Easter season. In his narrative of the resurrection of Jesus, Matthew draws his gospel to a close by returning to a theme with which his gospel began the coming of the marginalized and the weak and the lowly in joyful worship of Jesus Christ. Matthew bookends his gospel with scenes of Jesus being worshipped joyfully. Do you remember, back at the beginning of the gospel, in chapter 2, who do we have? It's the magi who see the star and rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and who, when they meet the infant Jesus, fell down, And worshipped him. That's chapter 2. So too in this closing scene of our redemption. It is again outsiders. Not foreigners in this case. But those who were counted the least of Jesus' disciples. The women who had followed him down from Galilee. Who rejoice. Falling down and worshipping him. Why has Matthew sandwiched? The story of Jesus between these two scenes of joyful worship. What is he trying to tell us? All along, Matthew has been leading us to this moment. To this moment when God sovereignly vindicates his son, declaring him righteous, who is falsely counted a sinner. Everything, everything including the cross has led to this. In the resurrection, God overturns the curse of the cross and declares Jesus the righteous one. God transforms a malediction into a benediction. He establishes once and for all that Jesus is who he says he is, that he can do what he says he can do, that he deserves what he says he deserves. It's the resurrection alone that makes the cross beautiful. That wood doesn't sprout nothing if it's not for the resurrection. Without the resurrection, the cross remains an immovable, divine no. It's the resurrection alone that makes a victory of Jesus' death. And because the resurrection vindicates Jesus, because it's God's divine yes to him, so also it is God's divine yes to all whom Jesus represents. That's you and me. It is God's... Hang hang with me as I say this. It is God's redemptive yes to humanity that overturns humanity's self-destructive no to God. It's the triumph of His grace. It is the end of God the Son's humiliation and the beginning of His exaltation, not as God the Son, but as the Word made flesh, as the incarnate Son of Man, to the right hand of the Father. It's what leads on to next week, to Pentecost, right? Now this is why. In every page of the New Testament, the Gospel stands or falls on Jesus' bodily resurrection from the grave. Subjective visions? Not good enough. Rumors that this Galilean peasant has raised from the dead that we, enlightened moderns, can set aside because we're not so gullible as those, those ancient Jewish believers. Not good enough. The bodily resurrection is what counts. Otherwise, it's not a yes. It's a No. We just heard Paul say it to the church in Corinth. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. I should not be up here. You should not be there. Christ has not been raised. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised and we therefore have hope only in this life, we are of all people, we Christians, are most to be pitied if Christ has not been raised. But if he has been raised, then it changes everything. It must change everything. Because it means that a first century Galilean peasant accomplished what Silicon Valley's wealthiest venture capitalists have emptied their deepest pockets trying to do. He defeated death. The resurrection means the beginning of the end of the old creation of death and decay and the inauguration of the new creation that God has purposed from eternity. It's the whole storyline of the Bible, all this, coming to a head in an empty slab of rock. You and I, like these women, and like these guards, we live in the overlap of these two ages. Our, Our kind of Christianese for that is the already but not yet. God's inaugurated but not yet consummated new creation. And Matthew invites us to peer into the garden-ensconced tomb where Jesus' crucified body had been lain to witness the dawn of God's new creation. We see this dawn triggered in an earthquake, this massive seismic event. The word there is seismos. Okay, This massive seismic event It's the third and final of those events that we get in Matthew's gospel. You get one of these tremendous seismic events when Jesus stills the storm in chapter 8. We get another immediately after Jesus yields up his spirit on the cross. You know, the rock breaks. And this is the third and final of these earthquakes. Now, to Matthew's readers who probably more than most of us, myself included, had the benefit of these biblically saturated imaginations. This was a clear hint that the apocalyptic day of the Lord, to which all the Old Testament prophets looked forward, that day, that irreversible break in history, when Israel's God showed up to set all things right, this is an indication that that day has finally come. And this, it seems, is much better news for those who are with Jesus than for those who are not. The guards who have been posted at the tomb on the orders of Pilate are there to ensure that Jesus' disciples don't nick his body and then go around and and spread a rumor that this Jesus has risen from the dead. Just like he told his disciples, including these women, that he would do. We can't have that. The guards are there to ensure that Jesus Christ stays buried. The thing is that even though these guards are confronted by the reality of the resurrection, they remain determined to see Jesus Christ stay buried. The tragic irony of all this is that the risen Christ has defeated death in their presence. But in denying death's defeat, the guards ally themselves to death. They take their stand against the risen Christ. They had sealed their tomb right back at the end of chapter 27. Something that reminds us very much of our reading from Daniel, doesn't it? They they chuck him in the lion's den, they seal it, and they leave him to an apparently certain fate. But now that seal is broken. But the guards, they don't or they won't accept reality. And so they place another seal on their lips. They deny the empty tomb. They bury the good news of the living Christ. And so the news that makes mountains skip and the trees of the field clap their hands is silenced. The guards ally themselves death. The seal is broken on the tomb, and so they take it on their own lips, and in burying the good news of the resurrected Christ within their own hearts, they're transformed. I want you to see this. They are transformed into walking tombs themselves. So it is for all who plant their feet in the old order that is passing away. Now, I want you to keep that image of transformation in mind. These guards transformed into walking tombs. Because the picture could hardly be more different with the women. Notice their response to the angel. Now, both the women and the guards respond initially in fear. But they're different kinds of fear, aren't they? The fear of the one... Look at how ironic this is. The the fear of the one leads to a state resembling death. The guards with their feet planted firmly in the old order of death and decay shook and became like dead men. Jesus, the dead guy, lives. The guards, the living guys, shake like dead men. Do you see the transformation? But notice how... After the angel's rebuke to the women, and it is a rebuke, you should have known better than to come here seeking a corpse. After that rebuke, the women's fears transformed, perhaps not vanquished, but elevated. It becomes gospel fear, that kind of fear that shades, that bleeds into joy. It's a pity that at least my English translation, the ESV, doesn't capture this. But Matthew actually substitutes a different word for tomb at this point in the passage. It's not the tomb of verse 1. There, that word refers to a, a sepulcher or a grave, a place where a corpse is buried. But here later on in the passage, when the women depart quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy... The word for tomb there is not the word for grave or sepulcher. It's the word for monument, memorial. In fact, it's the same word that we, it's, it's the root word from our mnemonic. Matthew's point is that the nature of this tomb has changed. It no longer bears the body of the Lord. It's empty. It serves only to testify to his absence from it. It's not a sepulcher. It's not a grave. It's not a place for corpse. It's a memorial to the crucified and risen one. And it signals to us that unlike the guards, these women have now planted their feet in the new creation. And their response is quite appropriately, joy. It is gospel fear. Verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples... Here, bound up with the women's fear, is that great joy that we saw all the way back in Matthew chapter 2. The joy with which the magi followed the star. With which they fell down and worshipped the infant king. Do you see these bookends of the gospel coming together? And see how in that joy, the women encounter the risen Jesus. Greetings, he says. And though the women, the women don't realize this, but Jesus is for us redeeming a word that has been poisoned over the last two chapters of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is undoing and transforming the treachery of Judas, who betrayed Jesus with a kiss, saying, Greetings, Rabbi. And he is undoing, he is transforming the wickedness of the Roman soldiers, his executioners, who mocked him and beat him and scourged him and crowned him with a crown of thorns, saying, Hail! Greetings, King of the Jews. Greetings, he says to the women. Greetings, I am making all things new. And suddenly, this moment for which we have been prepared since the coming of the Magi, finally arrives. In great joy, the women came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And the dawn of God's new creation, this point towards which Matthew's whole gospel account has been tiptoeing, is now revealed in its fullness. The one whom they sought, Jesus, who was crucified, is risen. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us on a precipice, leaves us on a a mountaintop, a high crag, looking down on the only two possible ways there are to respond to this news. We often hear about the Great Commission, right? Matthew uh, 28, 19, and 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But here, we see two great commissions. We see the one of Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where the news of the risen Christ is lifted high. But in the conniving of the soldiers and the chief priests, we see another great commission. A phony charge to bury the news that the king, the son of David, is risen. Now, here's what I want you to see. For Matthew, which of these two great commissions you are obeying? Whether you are, in your heart of hearts, heralding the resurrection or burying it, It's not just about what you say. It's not about less than that. But it's not just about what you say. It is also about how you are being transformed as a result of the resurrection. Remember those two images of transformation we've already seen. Matthew gives us those two contrasting uh, images of transformation. We've seen, on the one hand, those guards, these men who, by taking the seal of the tomb on their lips, are transformed into walking tombs. And we've seen, on the other hand, the empty tomb itself transformed from a sepulcher, a grave for a dead body, into a memorial, a monument. To the risen Jesus. And now The question that Matthew is asking. Is just this. Which transformation. Do I resemble? How are we even supposed to answer that question? Well, think about what a sealed tomb is. What's the purpose of the seal? It's there for two reasons. So that no one gets in and so that nothing gets out so if you want to know whether your heart resembles the tomb here is a diagnostic question is my stuff getting out am i healing from my hurts am i yielding my grudges am i am i someone who is forgiving Am I extending the mercy of Jesus? Is my stuff getting out? I'm a a novice, novice fan of the philosopher Albert Camus. Um, I'm reading right now through his 1951 essay, The Rebel, mostly because it looks pretty good on my shelf. (laughs) But the the other day, I'm reading like a, a paragraph at a time through Camus' little book. And the word seal jumps out at me off the page. Camus is describing in this paragraph what it feels like to resent someone. Your husband. Your wife. Your mother. Your father. Your children. Your boss. And here's how Camus describes resentment. Resentment, he says, is auto-intoxication. And this is how he glosses that. He says, resentment, the auto-intoxication of resentment is the evil secretion in a sealed vessel of prolonged impotence. The evil secretion in a sealed vessel of prolonged impotence. Picture this kind of bile-producing organ locked in a sealed alabaster flask that just keeps producing bile and laying it up and storing it up with nowhere to go. Now, this this strikes me as a good diagnostic question for everyone. Is there a moment in your life, I know that there are moments in mine, Is there a moment in your life, in your marriage, with your kids, with your boss, from which you feel chronically powerless to heal? Has some person or interaction turned your heart into an alabaster jar of bile? Now, Camus described anyone who could say yes to these questions. And like I said a second ago, at some point, every one of us can say yes to that question. Camus described anyone who could say yes to those questions as a sealed vessel. Now, that may seem a little harsh. Camus is a philosopher, and just occasionally philosophers say kind of silly things. The the, the thing is, this resonates with Matthew's description of those who plant their feet in the old creation. If my stuff can't get out of my heart, if my heart is, like Camus said, a sealed vessel, this alabaster jar where bile just keeps getting produced, but doesn't go anywhere, then how could Jesus possibly get into it? But this is exactly why Matthew makes the Great Commission to consist not only in what we say About the resurrection. Although it does consist in that. But also in what we are being transformed into. As a result of the resurrection. To be a Christian is to proclaim. That the great seal has been broken. Yes. But it is to do so. In a world of sealed vessels. As people whose unenterable hearts. Jesus Christ has entered. And there's more. Because Jesus gets in. Our stuff. Gets out. He breaks every seal. We're no longer sealed vessels. We're no longer hostages to our histories in the old creation. Far from it. We are people who plant our feet in a new creation. Now I'm not for one second minimizing any of those hurts or wounds. Not for one second. But I'm saying. That by virtue of the resurrection, we are a people that looks to the one who transforms all hurts and wickedness into occasion for joy. Jesus transformed the backstabbing of Judas. Greetings. He transformed the mockery and the scorn of his executioners. Greetings. And as with the women in the garden, he takes our tears and our sorrows. And our burdens, and he says, greetings, I am making all things new. The gospel says that through the risen son of David, the God who created you has broken the great seal once and for all, and that his conquering grace is such that against it no seal can stand. However carefully we guard against his intrusion. His grace triumphs. He will have you for his own. He will have you to transform you and redeem you and heal you. He will redeem and transform and plant you in the new creation. It doesn't mean that we will ever totally be uprooted from this old creation on this side of glory. What it means is that our feet will be planted in a new place in his kingdom. And as he does this, he will be transforming us who were once dead in our transgressions into living monuments to the risen Jesus. People whose hearts well up, not with bile, but with streams of living water. More on that next Sunday. And all of this is so that we, like the Magi, like the women, may come into the presence of King Jesus, fall at his feet, and worship him with fear and great joy.